the weird thing is, in a way, Cody, the more I started to understand who I was as a Denina person and that history, the more I understood Anchorage in our place and how do we create a better future. Mm-hmm. Because what I've seen is we tend to make the same mistakes over and over and over again, and we never learn from them. That was Aaron Leggett, the president of the native village of Aklutna. He is also the senior curator of Alaska history and indigenous culture at the Anchorage Museum. In both of those responsibilities, he's been a champion and an educator of the Alaskan identity. He's found that critical thinking is key to understanding how Alaska's history can help us navigate the present and the future. In this conversation, Aaron talks about his responsibilities as the president of Aklutna and how the museum fits into the larger conversation surrounding Alaska Native equity. So here he is, Aaron Leggett. Welcome to Chattermarks, a podcast of the Anchorage Museum, dedicated to exploring Alaska's identity through the creative and critical thinking of ideas, past, present, and future. My name is Cody Liska, and I'll be your host. You're one of my favorite people to talk to because you're <laughs> you're such a wealth of knowledge. With that said, it was pretty impossible for me to narrow down my questions to one single topic. So I'll be asking you all kinds of different questions. Well, great. Yeah, I, I like the sort of uh, free range of ideas. So let's start with this. What can you tell me about the statue of Captain Cook in downtown Anchorage and the call to have it removed? Okay. Um, So the statue in downtown Anchorage, the Captain Cook Memorial, uh, was... the, The story is that in 1976, to commemorate the bicentennial of the United States, you remember there was a big celebration. It was, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, they repaint, you know, they redid the quarter, painted fire hydrants. Everybody got real patriotic at that time, you know, Mm kind of like right after 9-11. Anyways, British Petroleum at that time, as they were called, decided that they wanted to give a gift to the city in honor of, uh, their activities in Alaska. And they also decided and realized that the bicentennial of Captain Cook, the national hero, or the British national hero, was going to be in 1978. So kind of, in a way, killing two birds with one stone. It was British Petroleum's gift to the city of Anchorage, a Captain Cook statue that was installed in i believe late 77 or dedicated in 1978 so that went up um it's a well-known icon certainly of anchorage uh i have you know i have brochures um from the late 70s that that highlight it it being close to the also named captain cook hotel um it became kind of a, a local downtown landmark and for me, growing up in, in Anchorage, it certainly was a symbol of Anchorage, but it also stood as sort of a symbol as I got older, realizing, well, why why is there no mention of the Denina 
in downtown Anchorage or really anywhere in Anchorage outside of maybe a few things at the museum. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it became to me this kind of symbol of, of the work that I wanted to do, which was to increase recognition. So anyways, fast forward to, I would say, I started hearing rumblings of this at the end of June. Uh, this kind of coincides with the um, the national movement of, of, you know, ripping down Confederate monuments and so on and so forth. And, you know, what I said was, I'm not in favor of ripping down the statue. But what I am in favor of, and I have always been in favor of, is a more accurate telling of the history of contact and, you know, that uh, what what did Cook truly mean for this area or didn't mean? Mm-hmm. And so that kind of opened up a whole can of worms, so to speak. Uh, people on both extreme sides of, of, of the position didn't like that. But, but generally speaking, I would say most of the people that I know that I work with, historians, anthropologists, my tribal council, all support that position. That we're not in favor of, at this time, let me, let me be clear about that. We're not in favor of it coming down at this time. There may be a day when it comes down, but but today's not the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, so luckily, of course, there isn't any opposition to that among the tribal council. Now, obviously, you know, one of the questions is, well, how do your tribal members feel? Well, you're always going to have a, a variety of opinions. I'm sure there are some that want it ripped down, and there's some that probably love Captain Cook. So anyways, that's... Uh, that's where it kind of stands. My point was that uh, I think that really the, the truth lies somewhere in the middle. I mean, on the one hand, he was an incredible mariner, and that does nothing to take away the in, in, you know, indigenous travel. But his, his level of accuracy and what he was doing was remarkable you know he he in the southern hemisphere marked the transit of venus which was used up into the 1970s to establish longitude for our planet what's interesting to me about this and i think you'll appreciate this cody was shortly after this all kind of blew up and i luckily i got a vacation to my wife's village of eagle alaska for a week where there was no internet and no cell service. Although one reporter still did track me down, but she's a personal friend. So I let that slide. (laughs) Um, But uh, when I got back, I was asked to give a talk for the Unitarian church and they had come up with a list of titles. And one of them half jokingly was to boldly go where no English sailor had been before. And they, they thought I was going to throw that title out. But I actually said, no, I want to use that title. And what I ended up doing in my presentation was, what if we took the kind of current climate that we're in and the lens of, of this uh, world that we're in, and we applied it to Captain Kirk? What would Kirk's legacy be? Now, you could say he's a fictional character and you're, you're sort of um, playing down historical realities, but I think it's important because I think there's a lot of similarities between Captain Cook and Captain Kirk. 
They were both farm boys. They both were trying to explore the world. They both had their pros and cons. Yeah, it's great. I like that. You were right. <laughs> you know, you could say, well, it's the male writers that wrote Kirk. He's just a fictional character. But he was looked at as, you know, he's a reflection of the society, right? Mm -hmm. And if he's a reflection of the society, then he could also be a reflection of the society in the future. So, I mean, that's the point was, though, that we can't take our historical values of today and apply them to the past completely to condemn people. Now, mm. there's not, that's not to say there aren't things, you know, there, there's no such thing as pure evil or pure good, you know, like it's, it's a complex issue. And the other thing that I pointed out was that Captain Cook never got off the boat in this area. You know, he kind of took a two week cruise, got lost and then left and mapped the area pretty well and, and did a little trading, but he never got off the boat. But it, it's just, you know, that history is messy. I don't operate in black and white. I operate in shades of gray. Mm -hmm. And that's just how I have been taught to, to look at the world. And so to me, the Captain Cook Memorial creates an opportunity to tell more about the history that I, or, you know, my people and the work that we've been doing. And it should be pointed out that, you know, our sort of direct critique or reaction to it was we put in our own statue down at the small boat harbor as a reflection of, of our values. Mm -hmm. And can you explain that statue? Sure. So down at the uh, small boat harbor, as part of a, um, a settlement uh, with the expansion of the Port of Anchorage and the connect. You might remember the Kinnick Arm Crossing. Mm -hmm. There was a whole group called Kabata, the Kinnick Arm Bridge and Toll Authority. Anyways, were that bridge to ever go in, which, by the way, I never think it's going to at this point, um, were it to go in to go from Point McKenzie out past Kinnick to Anchorage, the, the road where the bridge would have come off of would have went right over the top of a Denina fish camp that was used up until World War II well-documented photographs. I mean, there's no dispute of it. Um, we were forced out of there uh, when the army took it over and then used it to, to push garbage over the, the bluffs to make a dump out of it. And so it was a project dating back to 2005, actually predates my involvement with these things or just right at the beginning. Uh, but finally in 2017, we, we uh, worked with a local, uh, or I should say, a Denina artist from Kenai who had done other statues to create a Denina woman based on the historical likeness of uh, Olga Izai, uh, the wife of, of one of the last chiefs at Aklutna. And um, we created the statue, but really it's it's... It gets often called the Grandma Olga statue, but really it's the Denina woman statue. And what it represents is Denina fish camps and the matriarchal nature of our, our people and them being kind of the bosses of, of, of fish camps. And then the statue is looking toward the, uh, the fish camp, kind of remembering the past, so to speak. Mm -hmm. You know, how can we look at Alaska's history and 
apply it to the present day? Yeah. That's a question I, 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 I spend a lot of time thinking about, actually, because it, it's kind of this reoccurring uh, thread. And one of the, the challenges I think we face as a state, among many, is that we don't teach our history. We don't know our history. We know very little about it. I graduated high school. I'm a little older than you, Cody. I graduated without having to take Alaska studies. It was not a requirement. Mm. I know when you graduated, you had to take it. I did, yeah. I imagine, having talked to most people of, of the, um, that age, including my sister, who's uh, about four years younger than me, um, that it wasn't well taught, uh, that it leaves a lot to be desired. And so... I think the, the in a way the Captain Cook statue is kind of um, a indicator of that. It's like we can't have these conversations because there's so much misinformation on both sides. You know, there's mm. either he's the you know he discovered this area, he's the greatest thing to 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 show up, or he was you know a slave trader, and he really wasn't either of those things. Uh, he was an extremely successful mariner, and he did uh, document for the rest of the world uh, a lot of locations. And the other thing that I also point out is it's not like after he left Alaska and he swung by Hawaii, he sailed back to England where he became uh, a duke or a lord and, you know, six generations down you know, his descendants are in the house of lords. No, that didn't happen. You know, mm -hmm. he was killed in the Hawaiian islands for making mistakes. Yeah. So he paid the ultimate price. Like it doesn't have in a way a happy ending, but anyways, back to your question. I, I think, you know, it's like the PFD, you know, there's so much misinformation. We have this idea of what we think Alaska is, or we have this idea of what we think the PFD is. And then there's the realities. Mm-hmm. And those two things aren't meshing up, you know? And it's almost like there's this willful ignorance that I find kind of um, disturbing, I guess, the older I get. I think that it's interesting that maybe a westernized version of Alaska is still so new that lots of people can still kind of supplant their own realities to it yes absolutely you know i think you're right i mean the joke is that alaska history begin begins with when you showed up here mm -hmm. and there is some truth to that yeah no i think you're right i mean the history of anchorage i mean as for being the largest city in alaska and being you know at the only metropolitan area has barely just celebrated its hundred year anniversary mm -hmm. and and so you know, you don't have to go back too many generations to to find that this was, and still, I mean, in some ways, still is an indigenous place. But that has also largely been forgotten, or at least uh, until recently, had been forgotten. And so, I think this place does, Alaska does lend itself to kind of myth making in a sense, mm -hmm. and it creates these idealized versions of what you think it is and then then it becomes sometimes the idea becomes more powerful than the actual place and the contradictions 
And that's something that, you know, we've been at the museum kind of working to, I don't want to say debunk, but at least shine a light on, you know, what are these kinds of um, myths or exaggerations that Mm -hmm. we we tend to, to think about, you know, we tend to think about us being this like really rugged, independent, you know, kind of almost like a libertarian view. But if you look at like Anchorage as an example, it was started by a federal program to create a federal railroad. You know, there were, the, nobody was saying, you know, how dare the federal government come in and the federal overreach to build a railroad that private citizens should be building. No, they said, come on in, let's, you know, we'll, we'll spend the money and we need to open up these areas. I mean, there are some things that people forget that the federal, only the federal government can do. And so we, you know, as Alaskans, I mean, you know, there's like three legs to our economy and the federal government and federal spending is one of those three legs. You know, you said earlier that Alaskans don't know much about our own history. Mm-hmm. Do you have any Alaska history stories, maybe ones that people don't really know about? Oh, I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a ton of them. Um, you know, Walter Harper, uh, Khan Athabaskan, who was with uh, Hudson Stuck and was said to be the first person to get to the top of Denali. Um... William Belts, uh, Alaska Native, uh, part Alaska Native, who was the Territorial Senate president. Um, William Paul, um, the African American troops that built the Alaska Highway. Mm-hmm. You know the forced evacuation of Aleuts from their homes. I mean, there's little threads of these things, but they're not really taught that much, in my opinion. Um, you know, even just the understanding, what did the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act really do and what, what's the basis for it? Mm -hmm. The PFD, you know, what is the real story behind the creation of the permanent fund dividend? You know, we have these ideas, but we don't really, I mean, and I think so much of it is because of the transient nature of, um, our state. But I also think that, and this is why I'm so kind of passionate about it, there is, you know, our generation, Cody, looks at Alaska as our home. Mm -hmm. And in a much, in a disproportionately larger percentage than our parents or grandparents. And so what is the Alaska that we want to see for the future? And how do we understand that history and create a better state? I guess is, is what I'm trying to get at. I think that those stories that you mentioned, those people, I think that, um, and maybe they do teach a little bit about them now in Alaska studies. Mm-hmm. I didn't recognize most of those names uh, that you yeah. that you mentioned. So I don't think that I learned about them in Alaska studies when I took it. But I think that that probably would be a good start. Yeah, well, or... There's places in town, there's a local UAA historian, um, David uh, Reamer, who's been publishing these articles, kind of showing light on some of the names that we have, like uh, Edwin Glenn for the Glenn Highway was a notorious 
war criminal in the Philippines in the Spanish-American War, mm. then came to Alaska and helped kind of map it out. Uh, Russian Jack for, you know, Russian Jack Springs and Russian Jack Park, Russian Jack Elementary, was a bootlegger and convicted murderer, um, you know. And I'm not, all I'm saying is that we just tend to, like, it's like we highlight, we, we focus in on a few things and we ignore everything else. Mm. So, Julie Decker, mm -hmm. the CEO and director of the Anchorage Museum, mentioned that you might know of some Alaska murder stories. Do any come to mind? Alaska murder stories. Hmm. Well, I mean, there's there's some of the, you know, there's, I mean, during the sort of the pipeline boom, you know, I don't know if you've ever read the book Johnny's Girl. Oh, yeah. I just, I actually finished it uh, a couple months ago. It's great. Yeah. You know, so that whole history of, of Johnny Rich and his connection to some of these kind of like Seattle mob figures and stuff. There was uh, Neil McKay uh, who ended up, it was from a pretty, you know, the McKay building downtown, the big, they used to call it the pink octopus or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was his building and, and the family was, was well to do. And they, um, he was an attorney. He was convicted of planting a car bomb in his wife's ex-husband's car and it became quite this huge scandal and it's tied to the mafia and and i i know bits and pieces of them but they're kind of complex stories and i'm trying to think of i mean the michelle linehan one a few years ago was a interesting one um you know the 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 stripper that kind of uh then became a what was it uh you know, got her master's degree and, and was involved in this whole getting one of her lovers to murder another one of her boyfriends for the insurance money. I mean, it's kind of a tale as old as time. Yeah. But yeah. Hmm. You know what's interesting about Alaska, and I've said this before, the people that live in Alaska are or can be categorized, in my opinion, under two types of people. So mm -hmm. people that were born there and people that are from there, and escapists. You know, people yeah. that are either, say, escaping from the law or just escaping the hustle and bustle. Urbanization. There we go. Mm -hmm. Well, there's, I'd say there's three types of people. Okay. There are those that come to Alaska to escape something, and then there are those of us that are born here and have learned to love the place, and then there's those of us that are born here that as soon as they turn 18, want to escape. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, you know, a tale as old as time. They call it the brain drain. You know, how many kids that you went to high school still live here? Yeah. It, it, less than half, I'm sure. Yeah. But, you know, you go to some places where it's like, like I, my wife's got family in Ohio and like they don't move more than like a 30 mile radius in their whole life. Mm -hmm. And it goes back generations. You know, it's like they have everything they they need or they've never even thought about moving anywhere else. Whereas here, I think. And then, of course, you have the people that as soon as they turn 18, they want to escape and then they come back. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's kind of natural. I also think, though, 
what's interesting is, and it'll be interesting to see in like 10 years from now, um, how technology, the internet, and everything has kind of changed our idea of, of Alaska and where you need to live. So, you know, there was this idea of the outside that was very different than kind of what it is today in a way. Mm -hmm. So switching gears a little bit, uh, Julie also told me about the underwater people. That's also related to, um, to Captain Cook. So when, when the Denina first spotted Cook's two ships, the Resolution and the Discovery, probably coming in, you know, past Kachemak Bay, they saw these big ships, bigger ships than they'd ever seen, way out on the horizon. And they saw the ship, and then the ships would disappear. And what, what's happening is basically between the waves and sort of the curvature of the Earth, it's kind of creates like almost like a mirage or like an optical illusion mm-hmm. where the ship appeared and then it disappeared and it looked like it was coming out of the water, so to speak. So they called them the underwater people. And that's kind of the, the first name for sort of early European and Russian contact. So mm-hmm. that it's the, the captain cook, the George Vancouver, uh, Nathaniel Portlock and Dixon, um, Fidalgo, there were all these, you know, in that kind of late 18th century explorers, exploration. Uh, that's the name for all those kind of people, the people that were on these big ships that came, maybe did a little trading and then disappeared, so to speak. We had talked about you being the president of Aklutna. What kinds of things are you responsible for? I mean, obviously there's all the duties of, of, of you know, having quarterly tribal council meetings and, and you know, convening the, the council, uh, making sure that the day-to-day operations are being run through our tribal administrator and, um, you know, signing documents but really, I would say the biggest one is kind of being the, oh, chairing the meetings, but being kind of the public face for the tribe. And so it's almost weekly, or at least was up until COVID, doing welcomes and, um, and meeting with different stakeholders, land acknowledgments, uh, questions about you know, place names and consultations and, you know, a little bit of everything, which Mm -hmm. I'm very fortunate in that working at the museum, they, they see the value in that and also support that important component. So it it kind of, in a way, it's like having two full-time jobs. uh, And I'm just lucky that, uh, that I've been able to create a system where there's a lot of overlap and synergy and, they look at it as a uh, as an asset. Mm-hmm. 
you mentioned land acknowledgements. Mm-hmm. What is the significance of land acknowledgements? The significance of a land acknowledgement is is twofold. It, it's it's a recognition of the, the the indigenous people of the area, and I think it's also a recognition that we're we still exist and we're still here. Mm-hmm. So to me, what a land acknowledgement does is it simply says that we honor that this is an indigenous place and that we are humbly grateful to uh, to share in in the beauty of, you know, the area, so mm-hmm. to speak. You know, I'm I'm kind of noticing this common thread now that I think could lead to social progress as well as like social justice. And that is, we've been talking about education in a lot of ways. Like we've been talking about the education of what Alaska is and the history of Alaska. And then in addition to that, I think that the land acknowledgement fits right in there. You know, if, if we know, if we have the knowledge and the understanding of Alaska's history, then we can better, um, I mean, we can just move live in forward. a better place. Uh, yeah, yeah, better move forward. Yeah, I think that that that's the importance of it. You know, it it's, I mean, the thing about Alaska that makes it unique in a lot of ways is the fact that the the indigenous peoples of these areas were not forcibly removed by and large from their homelands. That they still occupy. You know, the the fact that you know, the native village of Aklutna has been in the same place for at least the last six to 700 years. Uh, and that this whole kind of what we call the Anchorage Bowl is our homeland. Mm-hmm. Now, it should be important to point out that there are, are a few examples of places that weren't that important to us. Like about once every year or two, I'll get a call from somebody down in Girdwood and they'll want to say, you know, like, what's the, uh, you know, what's the Denina story of this area? And they're a little disappointed when I tell them, well, we really don't have much to say about Girdwood. And they're kind of surprised by that. And I explain to them that, well, what's great for, you know, shredding powder is not a great place to live if you're a Denina. Mm. There's not a lot of food down there. There aren't really rich producing salmon streams before the road or the railroad went in, it was hard to get to and it's wet, you know, mm-hmm. I, I can't imagine trying to live in one of our semi subterranean houses and be under that wet, heavy snow, you know, that goes from snow to rain, you know, but it's just, it's not a, a very environmentally rich for our sort of subsistence ways. Mm. You know, I'm looking at this question, and I don't even know if I have it worded correctly, but I was communicating with Julie, and it seems like an important question, but if it doesn't come out correctly, maybe you can help me kind of correct it. But do you have any ideas of governance and tribal sovereignty? Do I have any ideas of how they can move forward? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, no, I do, because it's actually, right now, um, uh, I just had a meeting the other day with three of the local Anchorage Assembly members about this 
this issue. And what it is is basically what we're trying to do is to, to encode into the kind of the, the, the municipality's mind about ways that we can have, how we can work together on mutually beneficial issues. So things around, you know, education, uh, housing, homelessness, you know, emergency preparedness. Um, but what I think the idea of sovereignty is it, it's, it's a recognition of the, the tribe or the entity and their, you know, role as a kind of a governmental agency. Mm -hmm. It's the same way that the, the, the city communicates with the military or, uh, the school district, you know, that they all have their own roles, but that there are these consultations and, and they're formal consultations. And there's also less formal ways to do that. Public safety, you know, is another one. I mean, even we're seeing the state of Alaska start to understand that there's a role for tribes in helping if not solve, because I don't think that's the right word, helping uh, transition to create a better uh, Alaska, mm -hmm. so to speak. I like that. Transition to create a better Alaska. So here's a good example. You know, Alaska has the highest rate of domestic violence in the country. That's not a native problem. That's a state of Alaska problem, mm -hmm. right? So how do we create mechanisms by working with tribes the state and the federal government to alleviate that problem, you know, mm -hmm. uh, drug addiction, you know, mental health, all of these things, you know, we all have our role to play. And I think for a long time, especially when, when the state was flush with cash, it felt threatened by the idea of giving up some of its jurisdiction or its, it's authority or sovereignty, really. And we're starting to see that if we can work together, you know, by using the, the various assets that we have in front of us, that we can tackle the problem. That it's, the problem's bigger than any one entity can really handle on its own. Mm -hmm. You know, have you always been this aware of your heritage and and involved in your native community? No, no, absolutely not. Uh, I wasn't until I got out of high school. I mean, it, it, it was, this is not the life that I imagined I would be living. No, no way. Um, it was when I was 19, I took what I thought was going to be a summer job at the Alaska Native Heritage Center. I had a background in tourism. I'd been a railroad tour guide in high school. I've always been interested in this sort of stuff. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but I never had a teacher tell me, you know, that, uh, that this was a viable option. It's like working in a museum. Mm -hmm. Nobody ever said you can work in a museum. Like it was never presented to me, you know? Anyways, when I started working at the heritage center, I knew very little about who I was partially because there was no representation, but also when I started there, I kind of, in a weird way, felt like I was, what did I have to contribute because my village is here? Like, I didn't grow up in a rural village. Mm -hmm. 
you know, this is all our homeland. So are people going to be interested in that? I then came to realize that, no, that does make us unique or at least among a handful. I mean, the Denian in particular, you know, with half of the entire state's population living in our traditional homeland. So, I mean, it'd be the same thing if you were in Kenai or uh, Kinnick and, and Wasilla. Um, so, anyways, I looked at it as... Um, so, at first, it started with me just wanting to know more about it so I could talk to people about it kind of authoritatively. And then I just kept learning more and more and more. And when I started to learn more, I also realized that there was a lot that our elders had had documented partially because of the ease of access that was just kind of sitting on shelves. So all the work of Shampede or Peter Kalifornsky. And so I met other Alaska natives, some of whom who had grown up in Anchorage. And I said, I was Denina. And they said, what's that? And I said, well, we're the Athabascans from this area. And they said, I didn't know that native people uh, lived here. That told me that there was a huge problem for other Alaska Native people that had grown up here, not knowing that this is an indigenous place, told me that there was a problem. So I decided that I wanted to be a part of that um, change, I guess you, you could say. And I decided to get a degree in anthropology at UAA. I worked with uh, my professors there. We actually created the first class called Denying a Heritage and Representation in Anchorage, somewhat in reaction to kind of the Captain Cook statue. But I could see that there was this little thread that was starting to unravel about people starting to recognize, wait a minute, that this is an indigenous place. Mm -hmm. A good example of that was we had proposed for both Eagle River High School and... I think South High School, I could be wrong, but I know Eagle River High School at least, that it'd be called, you know, Denina High uh, or have some sort of indigenous name. And it was just kind of not even considered flatly rejected. And that was like in 2004, 2005. Then the Denina Center came, we got that passed. And when that happened, I was smart enough to know that kind of the trajectory of my career was going to be changed forever because we would have this $100 million building that has this indigenous name and honors the people, mm -hmm. and people are always going to wonder, why is that? And who are they going to talk to? And so, you know, it, it just kind of went like little step by step by step by step. The weird thing is, in a way, Cody, the more I started to understand who I was as a Denina person and that history the more I understood Anchorage in our place and how do we create a better future? Mm -hmm. Because what I've seen is we tend to make the same mistakes over and over and over again, and we never learn from them. You know, like issues around uh, development and taxes and, you know, mega projects like the Susitna Dam or the Kinnick Arm Crossing, you know, um, because of that transient nature, people keep thinking that they've had this original idea. Mm -hmm. And it's not, it, it, but it's never been properly dealt with. You know, I ask that question 
because I've interviewed people who have had to rediscover their Alaska Native heritage as adults mm -hmm. because as a youth, they were so enmeshed in Western culture. Right. What do you think about that, that re-education? Well, there's, there's a lot of things that I can point to, though, that have, that have occurred in, you know, even from the time when I was born till today. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we've progressed quite a bit in creating a world-class healthcare system, having an Alaska Native Heritage Center, getting formal recognition. It just didn't, it wasn't there when I was a kid. And so it's, it's different. So I think that, you know, as Native people, we have a lot more that we can look up to or, or to refer to than we did 30 years ago. But I guess to answer your question, my hope is that every Native person can be proud of who they are and that they they can make a positive contribution to our state. And, and that's the other thing I think about, the, one of the unique things about Alaska is it's small enough that you can make a difference. And that, that's not the case everywhere. But it's, it's not always an easy thing to do. I mean, and I would also say that it's kind of in kids' nature to just want to fit in. You don't want to be different. Mm -hmm. So there is that tendency. But I think, you know, I, I mean, I think about like the, the elementary school that I went to. And it was diverse, but it's a lot diverser now than it was when, when we were kids. Mm -hmm. But there were still those kinds of like stereotypes that existed. But, but then I also think about, you know, who we played with out on the playground and, 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 you know, it wasn't as, I mean, in some ways, like I, I tell people I lived like, it, it almost seems like bizarre, but it was like a typical middle class childhood. You know, my, my mom took care of us. My dad worked for the most part, at least up until, you know, I was probably in like the fifth grade. I mean, it was, you know, we would wander around, we'd go play in the woods, you know, I mean, you know, all this, mm -hmm. you know, too, it was kind of idyllic. Yeah. I mean, it really was. And that almost doesn't exist anymore, which is kind of sad, you know, in some ways. I mean, there's other things that are, are better about it, but, but the idea of like kids just, being able to go explore and wander and get into a little mischief mm -hmm. just doesn't exist the same way. So we've talked about this a little earlier, but you work at the Anchorage Museum as senior curator of Alaska history and indigenous culture. Mm -hmm. How do you see the museum fitting into the larger conversation surrounding Alaska Native equity? Oh, I think it has a large component uh, to it. I think that we we want to be one of the catalysts in our community to bring people together. I think one of the things that um, both Julie and I feel very strongly about is creating spaces to have conversations and also recognizing that we don't necessarily have the answers to all these things, but we can create the spaces 
to start the conversations and also, you know, be that agent to kind of like promote thinking, critical thinking, I guess, is what we're at the end of the day, what we feel strongly about. And I think it's one of the, the biggest disservices we do to students is not teaching them critical thinking skills. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize it in high school, but probably the best class I ever took the one that I use almost daily was uh, learning debate and how to evaluate information to form an opinion and how you can do it in a civil and respectful manner, mm-hmm. civil discourse. And I think we've lost that ability in our country. And I think that's one of the most important skills that we need to have. It's okay to disagree, but base it on facts or well, I don't even like to use the word facts anymore because that has now been tainted, Mm -hmm. but is based on empirical evidence and data to state your position. Mm -hmm. So best case scenario, what do you think is the ultimate goal of these places in the museum, these places of thoughtful conversation, civil discourse, and critical thinking? I think the best case scenario is that we have an educated citizenry that can form well thought out positions that aren't based on just emotion and fear or misconceptions. For more information about the Anchorage Museum, visit anchoragemuseum.org. This podcast was written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for the Anchorage Museum, with additional help from Julie Decker. Music was produced by Keezy Baby.